don't know about you, but there are times when life can get so challenging and you, you're, you're overwhelmed. Maybe it's health issues or finances or relationships, but you just feel like super overwhelmed. But here's the problem. I find that the times I get overwhelmed, I still have to go to work and I still have to do my job and I still have to be, you know, play my roles in life. You can't just say, well, I'm just not going to do anything until this passes. You kind of have to get, keep your act together. And the message this weekend, the title of the message is How to Hold It Together When Your Life is Falling Apart. And I really want to delve into that because there's a lot of things that we face, challenges we face. We face just, you know, our age, what other people think, toxic people in our lives. Some of us have those kind of negative relationships. Fear is one of those challenges, negativity, uh, the, you know, dealing with our past or worrying about the future. Those are all things that play roles in our lives and cause us to uh, struggle. But what happens to us is not nearly as important as how we respond to those things. And some people are made through difficult times and others are broken. So the question is, how do we keep it together when we're faced with really difficult challenges, hurdles, problems, and disappointments? And that's what we want to look at this weekend. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start at verse 12. And you're going you're gonna to look at this passage and you go, good luck with that one as far as the theme I just gave you. So let me, let me go through here because the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Passover. Okay, so stick with me. We'll get there. Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. I'm going to do what my preaching professors told me not to do. I'm going to preach two messages, and they're going to be very short, so it'll seem like, wow, that was really quick. Yeah, good luck with that one. All right, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Let me read it to you. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the, the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a, a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. So in your notes, in your outline, I have, you know, very intricate notes for the first two points, and the first part of it is the Passover explained, okay? Thought a lot about that, took me a long time to come up with that one. But you can write explained in the blank there, and you'll feel better about it. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about the Passover, because some of you, again, what I said earlier is some of us are, are, are still searching. We're not sure. Some of us have, are rookies. We're, we're kind of in our rookie season. We're newbies. And some of us have, are, are, are further down the road. But we're all learning. So we need to know this Passover. What does it mean? What is it all about? So for the ancient Jews, the Passover was an annual meal that commemorated uh, a, 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 a defining moment in their history. Um, the Israelites had been enslaved in, in Egypt, and uh, they had been slaves for 400 years. And they 
were in bondage and they cried out to God and God heard their cry and he raised up a leader and his name is Moses. And he sent Moses down. You remember the story of the burning bush and Moses, you know, met God at the burning bush and he says, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Moses went down and uh, God said to him, there's going to be a number of plagues that are going to come. And the plagues were used by God to... uh, loosen Pharaoh's grip on the people of Israel. The last plague was the final plague was the plague of the firstborn. And so both houses, both Jewish and Egyptian houses, were told, here's what you need to do. On the night of the Passover, you are to kill a lamb, you are to take the blood and paint the doorposts of the house. And anyone who is has the doorpost painted, their firstborn will be safe. If the doorposts are not painted, that firstborn would die. And that was the way to escape death, was to paint the doorposts of their home. Uh, This lamb's blood painted over the doorpost was a sign that your faith was in God. Okay, those were the instructions. So if you weren't under the the blood of the lamb uh, and you were a firstborn, you were dead. Your son was dead. Um, Now, when the angel of death came that night, the firstborn was either under the shelter protected by the blood uh, or or, uh, dead. If you were under the blood, blood, if the doorposts were painted, then the angel would pass over your house. That's where we get the word, the idea of Passover, okay? So you were saved because of the death of a lamb who substituted for you. This is how God delivered the Israelites from Egypt and let them out into the wilderness, into the promised land. So the Passover meal that we just read with Jesus, Jesus says, let's go prepare, go tell this man, find this man and get the room and we're going to have the Passover. This is what it is. It's, it's been a, 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 it was something the Jewish people, the Hebrew people celebrated year after year after year after year. While they were in the wilderness, while they were in the promised land, They did it for hundreds of years. And so Jesus is following the tradition of the Passover. But he does something really remarkable during this Passover meal. When Jesus instructed his disciples to Passover, uh, one of the things that would happen, and I don't have time to go into all the implications and all the symbolism of the Passover. There's a lot of it going on. But there were four cups. There were four cups and they were all symbolic cups. Now, I want to read what they would read during a Passover, a Jewish Passover today. They still do it today. And they would read this verse. You can, I think it's going to be up on the screen. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Let me read it to you. You can write it down. And this is what it says. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So there were four cups. The first cup was the cup of promise. And it meant that God was going to rescue them out of Egypt. Okay. The second cup was the cup cup of promise. uh, And it was freedom from the slavery. So the first one was that God was going to rescue them. The second one was that they were going to be free from slavery. 
The third one is very interesting because the third cup was the redemption by God's power, by God's divine power. So the third cup represented God's divine power. Now, when you read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus takes a cup. Remember the cup he takes? It's not the first cup he takes. It's not the second cup he takes. He takes the third cup. What was the third cup? The third cup was redemption by God's divine power. And what does Jesus say about that third cup? He says, this is the cup of the covenant. This is my blood. So what is Jesus saying there? He is saying that I will be the blood. You know how they had to take the blood of the lambs and put it on the doorpost? Jesus is saying, my blood will be used for the redemption. So the third cup came at the meal, almost was completely over. And Jesus would have used the words of Deuteronomy 26 to bless the elements, the bread, the herbs, and the lamb. He would have explained how they were symbolic. And what does Jesus do? Let me read it to you now. This is where Jesus, and this is where we have the Passover fulfilled in Jesus. This is what he says. This is verse 22 of Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Notice then he says, then he took the cup. This is the third cup, the cup of redemption. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he says, notice what it says. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes the third cup, the cup of redemption, um, and stated that redemption would come not through a future cup, but through his blood, his own blood. That he would be the lamb. He would be the lamb's blood that was painted on the doorpost. That's what he's saying. It's very significant because what Jesus is saying here is, I am fulfilling once and for all all the sacrifices that have ever been made. All the blood that has ever been spilled. I am going to be the last one whose blood is spilled. I am going to be the last payment for redemption. My blood. Now it's interesting, when you read through the gospel accounts... You have no mention, though there probably was a, a, a Passover lamb, because what they would do is they would sacrifice the lamb, they would take the blood, the blood of the lamb, and the, the uh, priest would offer the blood on the altar for the sins, and then you would bring the lamb back and you would eat the lamb. There's no mention of the lamb at the meal. As you read the gospel accounts, he mentions the cup, he mentions the blood, they talk about the bitter herbs, but they never talk about the lamb. And, and, and I think one of the reasons they do this is because Jesus is the, the symbolic. He is the lamb of God who takes away the, wind, the, the sins of the world. So do you see the significance of what's going on here? The, the exodus, the painting of the doorpost, the, the blood is on the door, the angel of death passes over, and then they come out, they celebrate the Passover meal, and Jesus takes the third, the third cup, which represents redemption, the payment for someone else's sin by an innocent party. The lamb was the innocent party. And, and Jesus, what was the, the phrase that the Roman soldier said about Jesus after his death? Surely he was innocent. Right? So it's very symbolic what Jesus is doing here. And it's, very, it, it's understanding. So here's the point. If you were back in Egypt... 
and you didn't have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, you're, if you were a firstborn, you were dead. Today, if you are not under the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if the doorposts of your life haven't been painted, you are under the wrath of God. What did Jesus do on the cross? He took the wrath of God for you. He took the punishment of sin for you. He took your place. He died so that you could live. He, his, through his blood, you are redeemed. You are bought back. You are paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you have the blood of the Lamb of God painted on the doorpost of your life? Are you under the blood of the Lamb? And that's really the first question you have to ask yourself. Have you called upon the Lord? Have Jesus gave his life to you? Have you given your life to him? That, that's what is, should come out of this first part of what we're talking about. And that's where everything begins. The, it begins as we give our life to him because he gave his life to us. That we realize we can't save ourselves and we need a savior. That we realize that we, are, we have no way of paying what we owe and we have no way of pay, making right the, the, the wrongs that we have made. And Jesus came to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. And he gave his life and that's why John says about him, behold the Lamb of God who takes takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus said, this cup represents my blood that I'm going to pour out in a few hours for all who will call upon the Lord. Do you know him? That's the first message. Now here's what I want to dive into, and I only have a little bit of time to do this, so I'll go rather quickly. As I was thinking about this, and going through the whole Passover and the fulfillment through Christ and all of that, I said, well, we could walk out and we say people have a better understanding of the Passover, the historical basis of it, how it was celebrated and how Jesus fulfilled it. And we could walk away and say, are you under the blood of the Lamb? We could walk out and say, yes, good, good, good. Tied it together, that's good. Well, one of the things that kept, I guess as I was reading through the passage, I thought, here's what I was thinking. Jesus is at the Last Supper, right? He's with his disciples. He's got a mission. He absolutely is in a mess right now, isn't he, at the Last Supper? Now think about this. He is about ready to be betrayed. The guy's at the meal with him. One of his when his own disciples are going to betray him, the rest of the disciples are going to all flee from him. He's going to go before a civil court and a religious court, and he's going to have to defend himself. And he knows that ultimately he's going to go onto a cross, a Roman cross, which is one of the most horrible ways in the world that you could ever die. And you know, you know, what, you know what else? He can't just phone it in. He can't just say, I don't want to do this. He can't just lose it here. And my question is, how did he keep it together knowing what was about to happen? That's kind of what kept going on in my mind. How did he keep it together knowing all these things were going to happen to him? How did he do it? Because I was thinking, that's kind of where we live a lot of times, isn't it? 
That's where we live, where, where, where life is so hard and yet we still have to hold it together. We have, still have to kind of keep going on. We can't just give up. We can't just give in. We have to stay on task. We have a mission. We have a, a responsibilities. We can't just say, I'm not going to do it anymore. That's where we're at, right? Isn't that what it comes down to? Again, Jesus knew he was going to betray he knew he would be found guilty through, uh, though he was innocent. He would be executed as a common criminal. His best friends would abandon him at his greatest hour. He knew all of this was going to happen. And yet he hung in there. So the question is, how do you hold it together when your life is falling apart? And I want to learn, because I think there's a few things that we'll see about Jesus, and I think this is, what, this is how Jesus held it, together, and I th- held it together. And I think if that worked for Jesus, I think, it probably would work for us. So this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on. And there are the four points on your notes. How do you hold it together when your life is falling apart? Number one, you look back. That God had a plan and he still has one. Notice that Jesus, what Jesus is doing at the Passover meal. He's, rede- he's reviewing God's redemptive plan. Jesus is basically fulfilling God's redemptive plan. He understands the history that's going on, that God has a plan. He realizes that he's the only possible bridge between heaven and earth, that we can't reach up to heaven. So God reached down to earth with his son, and Jesus willingly came to earth, off, got off of his throne, came to earth, and climbed up on a cross for us. No, God's redemptive plan, let me just give you hints of this. You might want to write some of these references down. Let me just read the verses. So Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.15, let me read it to you. This is after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and Adam is cursed, the woman is cursed, the, the, the serpent is cursed, and it says this in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is uh, the first stroke of redemptive history in the Bible because what it says is that somehow or another there's going to be this cosmic battle between good and evil and evil's going to have a blow but not a death blow. Good is going to win. Jesus is going to have a battle and he's going to win it. We don't know it's Jesus back in Genesis 3.15, but this is the first reference. Let's, let's go a little further. Genesis, write this down, Genesis, Genesis 12, verse 3. This is the very important passage because it's the Abrahamic covenant. And God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless those that bless you. I'm going to curse those that curse you. And, and then he says this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And you say, well, how is that possible? Well, we believe that that came through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus. If you keep going, notice what it says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In other words, what I'm trying to show you is that Jesus looked back on the plan and 
as the plan unfolded through history, he saw his role in the plan, that God had a plan for him as he, before he even came to earth <laughs> as a baby. But Jesus looked back and saw that he had a plan, and he was part of that plan, and he stuck to that plan. So there's a story in the book of Genesis. You remember the story about Joseph. He, he was favored by his father, got the beautiful coat by his father, uh, kind of like put a bullseye on your son, give him something, then don't give anyone else that, and that will be good for everyone in the family. And it wasn't. And they sell him as a slave. He goes into Egypt, and he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. His brothers come looking for food, and they come to a, a point where they recognize Joseph. Joseph reveals himself. He takes care of his father. He takes care of his brothers. They find some farmland in Egypt, and there's about 70 of them at that point. And uh, Jacob dies, and Jacob's sons are concerned, Joseph's brothers are concerned that now that their father is gone, that Joseph is going to get even with them. As long as dad is alive, we're okay. But once dad's gone, we're dead. And Joseph says something that's very interesting. He says this, you intended, to his brothers, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Most of us never get a chance to look back on what God was doing through our lives in the past and reflect upon it and see God's hand like Joseph did. And what I'm telling you is this, that when we look back at how God has been faithful and how God has always had a plan for our lives, why should we question that he has a plan right now? One of the things that kept Jesus going, and he didn't lose it, was he understood that his Father in heaven had a plan, and he was part of it. And by the way, God has a plan for every one of us. Every one of us, God has a plan. Every one of us. It's not just certain people. He has a plan for every one of us. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians basically said God had a plan before you were even born. So we look back and we say we're not an accident. We're, 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 we are created by a, a creator who loves us, who has a plan for us. And yes, we will go through difficult times, but that doesn't mean God still doesn't have a plan for us. We have this idea in Christianity that because we go through difficult times, we must be, have made God angry or we must be out of God's plan. Was Jesus out of God's plan at any moment of his life here on earth? Absolutely not. Did he go through difficult times? Was he betrayed? Yes, yes, yes. All right, so that's the first point. Second, second point, look beyond. Look, your current challenges don't define you. Jesus faced impossible situation. He was betrayed and deserted by his friends. He suffered a horrible, painful death. He was abandoned and alone at the time of his greatest need. And he didn't allow his circumstances to stop him or define him. That's easy to say it's hard to do. 
And what I found is it's easy to get distracted by the challenges of life. And Jesus had a lot of hurdles to jump, but he was never off task. He knew who he was, and he knew why he was walking on this earth. Do you? See, we, we, we've, we've listened to too many people who say, you're an accident, you're no good, you'll never amount to much. And what we're doing is we're listening to the wrong people. God made you in his image. He sent his son to redeem you. You're not an accident. You're a masterpiece made for a purpose. We, Paul says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, with, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We need to allow our creator and savior to define us and direct our lives. I'm absolutely convinced, and this is true of my life, I can't speak for you, and I'm a middle child, so that makes it even harder. Because middle children try to please people, you know, try, they're people pleasers. But here's one thing I know about me, and it may be true of you. I care way too much about what other people think and not enough about what he thinks. My decisions, my, how I live my life are way, way, way too much directed by what people think and not enough about what he thinks and what he says about me. Is that true in your life? Do you find that your life is kind of shaped by the people around you and not about what your creator and savior says about you? Unless we find our identity in Christ, we're going to struggle in life. And, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think one of the hardest things to do, but one of the best things that we could ever do with our lives is play to an audience of one. We ought to be asking, what does God think? What would Jesus want me to do here? What does Jesus say about me? Because you, you hear this negative talk from people, and you believe it. You'll never amount to much. You're not very smart. Jesus says, you know what? You're my masterpiece. I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. You're valuable. I, I went to the cross for you. Do you think you matter? Absolutely. Here's the third point. Look up. You have a Father in heaven who cares for you. You know, I talked a little bit about this the last couple, of week, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jesus knew what was about to happen. Um, and what did he do? He looked to his father. He went to the Mount of Olives for an extended time of prayer. And notice what it says. Uh, so this is, this is, by the way, this is the passage we're going to be in next weekend. We're going to talk about the garden. And some really <laughs> dumb things happen in the, in the garden with Jesus, you know. It's like a sacred moment for Jesus. It's one of the most sacred moments that Jesus has. I mean, he's pouring his heart and his soul out. And his friends are supposed to be there to support him, and, and they kind of fall asleep. And then there's this sword that Peter pulls out. I mean, there's this crazy stuff going on in the garden. But let me just read you a little bit. This is Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Now, just note that phrase because it says this wasn't the first time he had been there. It wasn't the second time. It wasn't the third time. He had a regular routine where he was at in the Mount of Olives and he was there to pray. 
He was there to talk to his father. He was there to unload. He was there to get help. He was there to get encouraged. He did that on a regular basis. And it says his disciples follow him. Uh, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that, you will not, uh, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he, pr- he prayed, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his, his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. This is pretty intense, isn't it? I think what I, just what I want you to see here is if Jesus needed help when life was just crushing down on him, how much more do we? God never intended for us to go at it alone. We have a Father in heaven who loves us, who willingly, he sent his Son, and Jesus willingly went to the cross. And we, we at, at the very least, we should go to him and find strength. Here's what I find. I find that when my life begins to crush in on me and things aren't going well for me, I, I, I tend to panic. I tend to worry and run scenarios instead of stopping, calling the time out, saying, God, I'm about to lose it here <laughs> and I need your help. And you know what happened when Jesus prayed? God sent an angel. Now, probably God's not going to send an angel to you. But I'll tell you what he will do. He will help you to change your perspective. He will give you a bigger perspective of your problem. He will give you promises that he has made to you, and they will be reaffirmed to you. And you'll walk out of that time as you bring this burden to him, and you unload it, you'll find yourself renewed, encouraged, strengthened. We all need that. We all need that. And like I said, if Jesus needed help, how much more should we? Here's the last one I want to share. Look ahead. Remember the promises of God. So I want to read a passage, and this is one of those passages that I've always looked at, and I thought, Wow, this is, you, you kind of read through it, and you go, oh, there's a passage, I read through it. And then there's a phrase in there that just kind of, you look at it, and you start thinking about it, and you go, wait a minute, <laughs> there's something there. Let me read it to you, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You write it down, and just listen to it so you hear it. The writer says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Notice this next phrase. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The phrase that, that strike, struck me a number of years ago, and I still, it's the phrase where he says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So the question is, how do you hold it together when your life is falling apart, when you're being betrayed, when you're under stress, when you're struggling and you, you need a friend but you can't find one because they're asleep by a tree or they've got lives and they're busy. And, and the question I asked, and, and I've thought through this a number of years ago, 
I was thinking, so what was the joy? Jesus, basically what Jesus is saying is, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Meaning that after the cross, there was going to be something that was going to bring him joy. And I was thinking, well, what is that? I mean, wouldn't you ask that question? So what is it that can bring God joy? Was it a sense of accomplishment? Well, I really did a good job on that one, you know. Pat yourself on the back, right? No, he didn't need that. How about that he got admiration from the Father? He already had it, in fact, a couple of times at his baptism on the mountain. It says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He already had that. He He didn't need to get it. He already had it. What didn't he have? Us. He didn't have us. That should shock you. In other words, what what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, for the joy, he said it before him, and that's how he endured the cross. He thought of us as he was going to the cross. He thought of us. Jonathan Edwards writes it really well. He he unpacks this, and I came across this a number of years ago. Let me read it to you. Christ has his delight most truly in obtaining our salvation, not merely as a means, but as what he actually rejoices in and is satisfied in, most directly and properly. And the bri- as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. In other words, what what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what Jonathan Edwards is saying is that Jesus saw that his sacrifice would save us, would set us free, would redeem us, would bring us to him, and he would look to that day when he would be with us. And it brought joy to him to the point that he was able to have joy in the midst of suffering on a cross. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. If that doesn't tell you that Jesus is like on your side, I don't know what will. If this, this is just mind-boggling to me. When you start thinking about that, you say, this was the motivation that he had. This was what encouraged him. This was what drove him along. Knowing that one day we would be with him in heaven. The joy set before him was us. And because of that joy, he endured the cross. I, I, I can't get over that. The, the point is Jesus had his eyes on us, not on himself. Let me give an illustration. Maybe this will help. Imagine a couple of people working in a widget factory, and they make widgets all day long. They put the pieces on, they tighten the pieces, and each person is doing you know, essentially the same thing. It's a monotonous task. And they have a certain, you know, speed of production. And they do it five days a week, eight hours a day. The first person has been told, we're going to hire you and you're going to get three thirty thousand $30,000 a year for working in the widget factory. The second person is going to get $30 million. Same job, 30000 30 million. After a few weeks, you 
begin to sit down and have lunch together, and let's just say you're the person that's going to get the 30 million. And the person that's getting 30,000 is complaining about the job. It's so monotonous. I can't stand it anymore. I just feel like I want to quit. I don't know if I'm going to make it another day. It's just, I, I, I just can't, it's driving me insane. I think I'm going to quit. And they say to you, aren't you as bored and aren't you ready to quit just as much as I am? And you go, no, I actually love this job. <laughs> like, it's great. <laughs> can't wait. Can't wait to get into work tomorrow because that's one less day that I'm going to have to wait. What made the difference? It's the reward at the end. The first woman sees no reward at the end. She only sees the here and now, and it's pretty bleak. Why is it that people who don't know Jesus and don't have the, the joy of heaven where Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also, that Jesus basically is... Uh, said, uh, when, you, when you die, uh, I may not be able to guarantee that you'll leave this earth peacefully, but you will be caught. You'll, you'll, you'll land in safe arms every time, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies, and, and there will be no more tears and no more death and no more dying, and all those promises. People who only live for here and now, this side of the grave, don't see any hope, don't see any joy set before them. But for the rest of us who know Jesus, who believe what the Bible says, we have a joy set before us, and we can endure, we can hang in there, because we know that the day of redemption is coming. You see, the second person sees a future payoff beyond their wildest dreams, it can't wait. It causes you to put your life here and now in proper perspective. If this is all you have right here and now, there's no real reason to get excited or have joy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he's talking to, to believers who have died, you know, that have loved ones who have died, and he says, don't be like the rest of the world who, the rest of the world who grieve without hope. Grieving is an important part of losing and death and dying. But he says, don't grieve without hope. What does that mean? That means it's not over at death. That means because Jesus was buried and rose again on the third day, and he's the first fruits, and that we who put our trust in him will follow him through death to life. That means that, that there is, there's hope. There's a joy set before us. Here's the point. Great hope can make the terrible bearable. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him. The joy set before him, and I still can't wrap my brain about around this, was us. Was us. So you should walk out with your head held high, knowing that you have a Savior who is absolutely committed to you, who found his joy when everything around him was falling apart, 
And he thought of you. And he thought of a future with you. Like a bride coming down the aisle to the groom. By the way, that's how it's portrayed in the Bible, isn't it? It's portrayed that the church, believers, the bridegroom, and that Jesus is, or the church is the bride, and that Jesus is the bridegroom waiting for his bride. And he's looking with joy. I've done a number of weddings in this building. And one of the things that I always see is when the bride comes through the door and a smile comes on the groom's face. And that's the joy. And Jesus basically, when life was crushing him, he looked ahead to the joy and he endured the cross. Do you know him? Is life crushing you down? Maybe one of these things will help you during your rough week, your rough, rough uh, month, maybe a few days that you're struggling. But I think we can learn some lessons from Jesus. How to keep it together when everything around you is falling apart. Let's pray. Help us, Father, because without your help, we can't do this. It's just uh, advice. May the Spirit of God take the Word of God to our hearts. May it energize us, encourage us, and give us uh, a new perspective on our lives and our problems and our struggles. Thank you for Jesus, Father, who willingly went to the cross and became the Passover lamb for us. And when he looked through the, to the cross, he endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, us. Thank you for that encouragement to our hearts this week. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.